0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter number 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. While you turn there, I want to say a heartfelt thank you to all those that labored in our absence. I heard everything went great and uh, I appreciate the Lord's goodness, appreciate the faithfulness of God's people and uh, I appreciate you not splitting the church or getting in fist fights or uh, anything like that. Or if you have done that, I appreciate you keeping your mouth shut about it. Amen. And uh, I really, it was a blessing, and we were able to get away for a time of refreshing and enjoy that time uh, in the Lord. And so I, I just want to thank you as a pastor. It's a blessing to me. You know, it's not that I don't think about the things going on that are, uh, you know, going on here when I'm away, but I don't have to. And uh, that's a blessing to me. And there's a difference between thinking about it because you want to and thinking about it because you have to. And if you don't know there's a difference, then you need a vacation. Amen. 1 Kings chapter number 11, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 14. Now, this is a record of some of the things that Solomon, uh, the king over Israel, experienced during his reign. Now, I want you to notice a trend, a theme here, Uh, beginning in verse number 14. The Bible says, And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. For it came to pass when David was in Edom, and Joab the captain of the host was gone up to bury the slain after he had smitten every male in Edom. For six months did Joab remain there with all Israel until he had cut off every male in Edom, that Hadad fled, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, to go into Egypt, Hadad being yet a little child. And they arose out of Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them out of Paran, and they came to Egypt, unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which gave him a an house, and appointed him victuals, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him to wife, the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapanes, the queen. And the sister of Tapanes bare him, Jinabath, his son, whom Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jinabath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh." When Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, and that Joab, the captain of the host, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to mine own country. And God stirred him up another adversary, Rezon, the son of Eliada, which fled from his lord, Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men unto him, and became a captain over a band, which when David slew them of Zobah. And they went to Damascus, and dwelt therein, and reigned in Damascus. And he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon beside the mischief that Hadad did. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat and Ephrathite of Zaretta, uh, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo and repaired the breaches of the city of David, his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. It came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him in the way and he clad himself with a new garment and they too were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to thee. Now I want you to look down in verse 40. We'll read this verse and then pray. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Let's stop and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the house of God. Lord, thank you for Wallridge Baptist Church, these sweet people. Lord, I pray that you'd help me today as I minister the Word of God to them. Lord, to completely get out of the way. May I hide behind the shadow of your cross. Lord, may they not see me, but see Christ and hear your Word, Lord. And may you do a work today in their midst that would bring you glory, that would edify them, that would draw us closer unto thee. Lord, I'm so thankful for your provision, your protection over us. But Lord, now this morning we pray for your presence, Lord, not just your express presence, but your experiential presence. Lord, may you walk these aisles, may you stir hearts, and may your will be accomplished in a way that would bring you glory. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen in 1 Kings chapter number 11, we have a record of some of uh, Solomon's adversaries during the reign uh, of his days. The Bible lists for us in fact on three separate occasions we find this word adversary. Verse 14 says that the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon. How many of you have ever had an adversary in your life? I'm talking about just somebody that just set out to make your life their problem all the time. Just set themselves against you. Well this was How this man, Hey Dad, the Edomite, was for Solomon. It was, I mean, listen, you may have experienced this when you was a kid growing up. I don't know if you ever dealt with any, we didn't call them bullies back then. There's just the biggest kid. Amen. But uh, dealing with some bully that they just, they picked you out, man. They cut you from the herd. They saw you and saw that you was easy to pick on. And they just made your life miserable. Hey Dad was this way with Solomon. He had picked Solomon out and he was going to make Solomon's life a misery day by day day. Now, it's one thing to have an adversary, but the Bible says in verse 23 that God stirred him up another adversary. I I just sure wish in life that my problems would line up in single file, don't you? you with me this morning? My name's Toby Weber. I'm the pastor of Walridge Baptist Church. It's good to meet you. Uh, I preach here sometimes, amen, occasionally, and I'd be much obliged if you'd help me preach a little bit this morning, amen. Uh, these other guys are better preachers than me. They don't need no amen to preach, but I'm a poor preacher. I need help this morning. I sure wish that my problems would just line up single file. I wish they'd just get in a nice, neat, orderly, uh, single file line and let me handle them one by one, but how many of you know that that is not the way life works? The reality is you ain't always just going to have one adversary at a time, sometimes the adversaries are going to stack up. The Bible tells us another adversary was set against him. And then in verse 25, we're told that this man, this Rezon, was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon beside the mischief that Hadad did. They're working in tandem with one another to make Solomon's life miserable. There's a third man that's mentioned in this passage as an adversary. He's not called an adversary, but it turns out that he is the greatest opponent of the life work of Solomon. He's introduced in verse number 26, we're told that Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's his name, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So to give you a little bit of history of what takes place in Israel, all during the reign of Solomon, the kingdom stays together. But then, according to the word of the Lord, upon the death of Solomon, Jeroboam peels off the northern ten tribes of Israel and they create their own kingdom. In other words, everything that Solomon had labored for, everything that he had worked for, everything that he had built, was completely unraveled by the work of this man, named Jeroboam. boam you say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, it reminds me that, you know, in our life, we have an adversary. Peter calls him the devil. Amen. Uh, that would behold your uh, your adversary as a roaring lion walk about seeking whom he may devour. But we're not just limited to him as an adversary. Oftentimes in life, we will have multiple adversaries. And sometimes we'll just feel like life is fighting against us. What are some of the adversaries that we might face? Well, when we read this passage, I think that we have an overview of some of the things that often trouble us. For instance, when we read about Hadad the Edomite, I'm reminded that sometimes we're troubled by the world around us. It's interesting what the Bible tells us about this man, Hadad. I don't guess we had to know this man's history, but the Holy Ghost wants us to know it, to set the frame for who this man is. And Hadad was a thoroughgoing, worldly individual. For instance, think about his worldly heritage. The Bible says that he was an Edomite. He wasn't just an Edomite, he was of the king's seed in Edom. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know who the Edomites are. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Now, what do we learn about Esau in the Bible? Here's what we learn. He is a worldly man. He's willing to sell the spiritual promises of God for that bowl of pottage in that moment, for that momentary passing satisfaction of the flesh. And all through the rest of Esau's life. Listen now, he wasn't a failure. He was carnal. Boy, I'm going to say that again. I'm about to remember how to do this. Amen? You know, in the world's eyes, he wasn't a failure, but in God's eyes, he was. You know why? Because he was carnal. You know, you can have the fattest bank account and the newest car and the nicest clothes and still be a failure in the eyes of God. You may not be a failure in the eyes of the world. I'm afraid one of the things that the, the great disservices we're doing to our children, we're teaching them how to swim and fly through this world while they're stumbling in their walk with God. Listen, you can teach them how to reach all of the successes that this world may laud and may applaud and may appreciate, and they still be a failure in the eyes of God. Well, this was the history, the lineage, the heritage of Hadad. So he is a worldly man. He's grown up with a worldly family. Not only that, verse 17 tells us about his worldly home. Hadad fled. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. And where did they go? Well, the Bible says they went into Egypt. And in your Bible, Egypt is always a picture of the world. Anytime a man went to Egypt in the Bible, you can look it up, you can track it down, you can check me out, he always goes down to Egypt. Doesn't matter where he's at geographically, he's always going down to Egypt. Egypt was the world epicenter. Egypt was the place of pagan worship. Egypt was the place of the world system. Say, Preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this, man. We live in a wicked world. We live in a world that has its own system, its own forces, its own desires, and its own economies. And sometimes, if I'm just being honest, man, sometimes I just get troubled at how wicked this world is. You ever get the feeling if the world would just get out of your way, you'd be a super Christian? <laughs> yeah, you're as ignorant as me if you think that. We see this man, his worldly heritage, his worldly home. But then notice his worldly heart. Verse 19 The Bible says, Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him to wife, the sister of his own wife, the sister of Topnes, the queen. So in other words, Hadad is this man who is entirely worldly, thoroughgoing. He is of the world system. He values the things that the world values. And sometimes, man, we we can spend all our time, especially if we got our heads stuck in that news all the time. We're watching all the wickedness, all the chaos, all the ungodliness in this world. Sometimes... Feel like, well, preacher, if this world wasn't so wicked, I could really do something for God. But you know, the reality is this. This world cannot uh, stop you from serving the Lord. It can try. It can try to burden you. It can try to grieve you. But hey, Christ already answered this. He said that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. As a Bible-believing Christian, born again and dwelt by the Spirit of God, you have no right to blame your stunted spiritual growth on the world around you. The Lord has done preempted this world's influence in our life. He's made us a citizen of heaven. He's taken us out of the jurisdiction, spiritually speaking, of this world system. If you choose to engage in their system, that's your choice. We don't have to live that way. So Solomon, he's troubled by the world. Not only that, we're then introduced to this man, Rezon. Verse 23 tells us a little bit about him. There's not a lot said, but enough is told us to give us an impression of the man. God stirred him up another adversary, Rezon, the son of Eliadah, which fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. What did he do? He gathered men unto him, became captain over a band when David slew them of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt therein and reigned in Damascus. Then it says he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon beside the mischief that Hadad did. Not only that, the Bible says he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. If Hadad reminds me of this world system, and here's Solomon being troubled by this world system, then reason reminds me of the wicked worker, the evil doer. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, notice three things. Number one, notice his wicked character. He is an outlaw. He is a deserter. He is someone that has abandoned his rightful liege lord. He has fled and he has gone into the wilderness running from his lord in lawlessness. Can I tell you this? Sometimes, man, I was talking about this in Sunday school. I'm just bothered by how lawless this world is. I mean, listen, it's becoming glaringly apparent in our society today that if you donate to the right people, if you vote the right way, if you've got the right friends, if you've got the right connections, there ain't no law for you. By the same token, on the other side of it, if you've got a wrong opinion, if you've got a wrong association, if you've got wrong ideas, you don't even got to break the law. They'll just come kick down your door anyway. And I don't know about you, man, that just, that bothers me. I mean, sometimes it just creates a static in our day-to-day spirit when we're living in that environment. I see his wicked character. Notice his wicked companions. Wasn't bad enough that this guy was a scoundrel. The Bible says he gathered men unto him. And you can bank on what kind of men they were because the Bible says he became a captain over a band. And the Bible says they went to Damascus and dwelt therein and reigned in Damascus. So here's these men, a band of outlaws that have gone and set up a petty pretender's kingdom in Damascus. And there they are, just almost like a little mosquito. I could tell you about mosquitoes, amen? Amen. I could tell you about mosquitoes. After a week in Florida, I could tell you about mosquitoes. Some of you people from Florida, I know how you got here. You just rode one of them up here, amen? (laughs) He's like a pesky mosquito just biting at Solomon, like a little dog nipping at his ankles. I see his wicked character. I see his wicked companions. And you know, one of the things that troubles me is not just that there's wicked men in this world, but they all seem to find each other and stick together. It's amazing that we as God's children would be so loath of the fellowship of believers. Can I tell you this? This world believes in like-minded fellowship. Oh, I'll just say it again. This world believes in like-minded fellowship. Why don't you? This world believes it needs people around it that believes the same way, that looks at the world through the same prism, that sees things in the same way. Why don't you believe that as well? So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, man. It just, it, it don't just bother me. I, the, I, I've done, I don't even want to hear the word conspiracy. It ain't conspiracy. It's just open your eyes and you'll see it. Right. Wicked men have gathered together to, to unmoor the underpinnings of, of Christian civilization to destroy the world around us. And it just, man, I don't know about you, it just troubles me sometimes. I, I see his wicked character, his wicked companions, then I see his wicked conduct. He set himself against the king of Israel. He set himself against the people of God. The Bible says it this way, he abhorred Israel. He abhorred Israel. Can I tell you, a lot of those people trying to destroy your life, they do hate you. They do. Uh, the The... Uh, the For a long time, we have bought into this live. Well, you know, everybody really just wants to see America do its best. No. 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 Well, you know, everybody, we just have different ideas about the way things are. Nope. There are people, well, you know, everybody, they just, they have their own perspective. Nope. There are people that hate Bible Christianity. There are people that hate the fact that you can do what you're doing here today. And that's why they've done what they've done. They've tried to shut it down. They've tried to close it out. They've tried to snuff it out. They've tried to make it illegal. It ain't going to get better. It's only going to get worse in this world. I don't know, man. Sometimes it just, I don't know, it just troubles me, you know. I, I, I'm troubled by the world. I'm troubled by the wicked. But then I'm also troubled by the wayward. The Bible tells us about this man Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You know, it's interesting. Uh, You can allow yourself to develop a perspective on a person without really having all the information at the forefront of your mind. When I say Jeroboam, some of y'all, give me an amen if, if you're this way. When I say Jeroboam, I immediately think of a man that's godless that's wicked. I think of a man that's a, that's an idol worshiper, that is a pagan. I think of a man that is rotten to the very core. Anybody else like that? If you're a student of the Bible and you hear... In fact, most of the time, when the name Jeroboam is mentioned in the Bible, it's talking about the sins that Jeroboam walked in. King after king over Israel, it would say he walked in the sins of Jeroboam, his father, over and over and over. He's a wicked man. But you know, his life didn't start out that way. Notice what your Bible says, verse 26. It says, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite. Now, an Ephrathite means of Bethlehem, Judah, right? Just like our Lord. An Ephrathite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman. Even he lifted up his hand against the king. Can I tell you, it troubles me for this world system to set itself against God's people. But at the end of the day, I know that we're not of this world. It troubles me for wicked men to set themselves against God's people. But at the end of the day, man, children of the devil are going to hate children of God. I get that. But I'll tell you sometimes what hurts us the most is when somebody that we've loved, somebody that we've cared about, somebody that we've poured our life into, when they're the ones that turn against us. Let me say it this way. Troubled by the world, troubled by the wicked, but here we see him troubled by the wayward. This story begins this way. Notice, number one, that Solomon protected him. We're told that Jeroboam is the son of Nebat and told that his mother's name is Zeruah. But then we're told this, that this was a servant's family in the house of Solomon and that his mother was a widow woman. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me this, that at one point they were a whole family there in Solomon's household and probably his father was a servant of Solomon, his mother was a servant of Solomon, but at a certain point his father died. Solomon, instead of turning him out, instead of kicking him to the curb, instead of casting him aside, he takes him in, he raises him as his own, he watches over him, he makes sure that he is provided for. In other words, this is a man that Solomon had been very good to. He protected him. Then verse 28 says this, The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of You know, part of the reason that Jeroboam was able to peel off those ten tribes, oftentimes the northern ten tribes were called the house of Joseph in the Bible. You know, part of the reason he was able to do that was because Solomon had promoted Jeroboam to being over those ten tribes in the first place anyway. So what are you getting at, preacher? Well, I'm saying this, man, this ain't somebody that Solomon's abused. This ain't somebody that Solomon has neglected, disdained, despised. This is somebody that Solomon has took into his home, has raised, has made a sort of prodigy for himself, that he has watched over him, protected him, promoted him, been every bit of good that you could be to him. Yet the Bible says this man lifted up his hand against the king. You know, one of the most hurtful things in our life, it's, we expect our enemies to be enemies. But when it's been folks who've been good to, folks that we've been better to than they have probably deserved, better to than anyone else would have been to them, done more for, and they're the ones that turn around and hurt us. Man, it can trouble you. We see that Solomon protected him, promoted him, and then he spent the rest of his life pursuing him. Verse 40, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, unto Shishak king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So in other words, Solomon is so troubled by this hurt, this betrayal, this burden that he is bearing that he spends the rest of his life with a price on Jeroboam's head, waiting for news, listening for news, trying to get a hold of him, spends the rest of his life consumed with pursuing. Say, preacher, I, I get it, man. This world's wicked. These people are awful. Feel sorry for me, preacher. Everybody's mean to me. But you know, when I read in this chapter, there is another adversary and this adversary is actually mentioned before we ever get to these adversaries. Let me tell you what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to think, well, preacher, if all these people weren't working against me, I could really do something for God. Preacher, if all these people weren't trying to stop me, I could really live for the Lord. Preacher, you don't understand. If this world wasn't so wicked, I could. But is that really the truth? We'll preach to you on this thought this morning, our greatest adversary. Preacher, I got some adversaries. I bet you do. Me too. But they're not your greatest adversary. Preacher, everybody's against me. Well, number one, you ain't important enough for everybody to be against you. Neither am I. But number two, even if there's a few, that ain't really your biggest problem. Can I tell you the real reason that Solomon's ministry, his reign ended the way it did? Can I tell you the real reason? We got a little glimpse of it when the Bible says that the Lord raised up and stirred up adversaries. But can I tell you really who his greatest enemy was? We find him in verse number one. Look with me. The Bible says, but King Solomon. There he is. That's the culprit. That's the man. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon, clave unto these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that, which the Lord commanded. Wherefore, the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. You know the dirty little secret the devil don't want you to know is that the real person that's keeping you from serving God is not that neighbor that annoys you. It's not that politician that's grifting you. It is not this world system that's hating you. But in fact, it is you and you alone. The greatest adversary that Solomon had was the man that looked him in the mirror every single day. The man that had the most control over his life. The man that governed him. The man that, that, that led him. It was Solomon, and we could say it this way, it was his flesh Amen. that was his greatest enemy. Notice three things with me very quickly this morning. Notice number one, the desires of his flesh. Where did it all begin? Now, Solomon is a man just like anybody else. He he has temptations. He has desires. Uh, There's not a single one of us that does not uh, desire to do wrong things at times. We are tempted. The problem was not that Solomon was tempted. The problem was that he yielded. And what did he yield to? Well, notice number one, the craving of his flesh. The Bible says in verse 1, "But King Solomon loved many, notice this word, strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, when the Bible uses the word strange, it don't mean like me and you. But what it means is people that were alien to the concept and covenants of Israel. People that did not know God. Isn't it amazing? Me and my wife were talking about this on the way home. We was listening to the Bible on the radio there and and, and listening to this passage and talking. Isn't it interesting? Here's a man that he's the king. He has uh, 700 wives. He could literally have any woman that he desires. But his flesh only and singly wants that which is forbidden to him. wasn't wrong for a king to marry? And uh, while there's certainly no biblical endorsement of polygamy in the Bible, we do find it to be a fairly common practice at that time. And the problem was not that he was short for women. The problem was not that he couldn't find no companionship. The problem was this, the flesh always desires that which is contrary to the Lord. Can I tell you the reason your flesh is such a problem for you? Because your flesh is never going to cooperate with God. You cannot do in the energies of the flesh that which pleases the Lord. The natural man is not subject to the law of God. And listen, here, Paul even doubles down. He says, neither indeed can it be. It's not just that yours is broke. It's that everybody's is broke. It's not just that you ain't figured out how to do it right. It's that all of us, our flesh, our natural condition is broken before God. And the sooner you learn that and quit trusting your flesh, the better off you're going to be. I see the cravings of the flesh. Then I see the course of the flesh. The Bible says this, the women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. Now, how did this all begin? Well, the Bible says in verse 1 that he married them together with the daughter of Pharaoh. This seems to imply to us this, that he wanted to marry uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, but if he was going to make that political marriage, then he was going to have to make league with all these various nations. You know what I've found to be true? Uh, Sin will never confine itself to the place we want to keep it. We like to believe. We like to dream and imagine. Well, preacher, I can just commit this little sin. I can be involved in a little bit of this. I can just get engaged in a little bit of this sin. And it's going to stop there. I've got self-control. If you had self-control, you wouldn't be in it in the first place. Oh my! If you can do what you think you can do, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing in the first place. Quit deluding and deceiving and lying to yourself. Here's the truth of the matter. It doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are. You got a flesh. I got a flesh. All of us do. And as such, when we engage in sin, it never stops where we wish it did. He just wanted Pharaoh's daughter to wife. But listen, sin always comes with companions. Companions. I uh, mean, uh, like I said, me and my wife were, were were talking about this, and she said, I don't understand how, the Bible says that he loved seven hundred women. How could he do that? I said it's impossible. I said there's no way he didn't even know their names. Amen. Now some of y'all done forgot your wives' names, but but he, he didn't he didn't even know their you know what the problem was? He loved the idea of it. I I mean I I'm not going to I'm not going to get explicit or crash or anything, but seven hundred wives, he wouldn't have even been able to spend time with all of seven hundred wives. It was not necessary, but it's that he liked the idea of it. Let's say it this way. He got comfortable with the idea. Of- you know, the great danger of our flesh is that as we indulge it, we grow comfortable with the idea of it. We just grow comfortable with the fact this sin is going to be in my life. I hate this phrase that we use. And I understand there's maybe some biblical foundation, but I think it has been warped and twisted and it has become a crutch. We use the term besetting sin. People say, well, preacher, that's my besetting sin. Hey, listen, ain't no sin beset you harder than Calvary. Hey, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. When we say it's my besetting sin, what we're really saying is that's the sin I've grown most comfortable with. I've just grown to believe it's always going to be present there in my life. The great danger of the flesh, we grow comfortable with sin being a part of our life. I see the course of it. It didn't stop with just the daughter of Pharaoh, but it always leads to more, and sin always leads to more. But then notice verse 2. The Bible says of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. The Bible says this, Solomon clave unto these in love. The word cleave and clave, it means he clung to them. He fused and melded his life to them. They became the focus, the centerpiece of his everyday life. We can see that by the next few verses. He turns his attention away from the Lord and the work of God and instead spending his life trying to please them and satisfy them and make them happy. The truth of the matter is this. We say, well, preacher, I can quit it any anytime I want. I'd say if you could quit it any anytime you want, you wouldn't have started it in the first place. Oh, preacher, you don't understand. I'm involved in this sin, but I can quit anytime I want. All right, go ahead. Well, preacher, it ain't that simple. Maybe not to you, but it is to God. See, here's the reality of it. You've got to start getting honest about the things that you're battling in your life. As long as you're sitting there trying to make this thing seem like it's no big deal, like, oh, yeah, this sin in my life, it's just a small thing. It's no big deal. Everybody has sins. And, so, and whatever you got to tell yourself. But the truth of the matter is, what that is, is you cleaving, clinging to that sin. The danger in sin is, it will become, and arguably it could be said, that even initially it is more important to us than the Lord. But I would say this, as God in loving kindness, tenderness, and long-sufferingness tried to pry this sin away from Solomon's life, Solomon just clung harder to it. He became addicted to this sin. It became a part of him and he refused to let it go. I see the desires of his flesh, but then I see the defilement of the flesh. The Bible says in verse number 3 that this produced some things in his life. The Bible says he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, this is an interesting verse for a lot of reasons. One, consider the usage of the word perfect here. Now, we were talking about this in Sunday school. I've said it a million times, preaching to you here in the service. The word perfect in the Bible, rarely does it mean spotless or stainless. There are a few times. Most of the time, it means mature. It means whole. It means complete. You know, here's the way i describe the word perfect here. In tune. His heart was not in tune with the Lord. As was David, his father's. You know what's interesting about that? David wasn't exactly a, a choir boy himself. He made mistakes. He did wrong. He sinned. He, he disobeyed the Lord. I mean, really, when you read through David's, the narrative of David's life, it seems to be one sin after another almost. I mean, there's here he wins a battle, here he does a good thing. Next thing you know, he's taking another man's wife, he's killing him, he's numbering the children of Israel. I mean, he had a life that was full of blemishes and mistakes. And the Bible says his heart was perfect with the Lord. You know why that is? David made mistakes. But here's one thing David, for the most part, always sought to do was to maintain fellowship with the Lord. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Say, so, Preacher, did David mess up? Sure he did. And then we get Psalms 51, where he's broken and begging God for forgiveness and repenting of his sins. God ain't asking you to be stainless. He's not asking you to have a spotless record. But He is saying you've got to maintain fellowship with Him. And here's what happened to Solomon. Uh, whenever he indulged in his flesh, it defiled his fellowship. His heart turned away from the Lord, and now he no longer cared what God thought about his actions. He just did what he felt was right in the first place. Why would you be surprised? Listen, what got you into this sin was doing what felt right. Why would you think for one second that you ain't going to continue to do what you think feels right? Here, I don't think I'm saying Let let me say it again this way. You got into this because in that impulsive moment you said, I'm going to choose this over the Lord. Why would you then think you're going to pick up from that and go on and say, Now, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. Lord, I just want to pray and know Your will in all things. Lord, just whatever You desire for me, I want to surrender myself to You and I just want You... That's nonsense. The truth of the matter is this, if you allow sin in your life, pretty soon you're going to quit being interested in what God says. He turned his heart away from the Lord. He didn't want to listen to God anymore. He didn't want to hear what He had to say. And you think you can maintain the same Christian walk that you've had and still have sin in your life. I'm sorry, it cannot happen. I see the defilement of his fellowship. But then verse 5 says this, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Let me say it this way, it defiled his fellowship. Number two, it defiled his worship. Uh, what, What broke on the inside pretty soon manifests on the outside. He quit praying, he quit talking to the Lord, he quit listening to God. And pretty soon he said this, what's the point in even going down to the temple anymore? I'm going to go down to this pagan uh, temple instead. I'll tell you this, and this isn't true of everyone. There's people get out of church for a myriad of reasons. But uh, listen, I, that we could fill this room three times over with people, that the reason they're out of church... I'm talking about people that I know personally, that the reason they're out of church today, they let some sin into their life. And pretty soon, church got boring to him. Preaching got boring to him. The things of God got boring to him. They had no interest in it. Listen, if you ain't going to listen to God, why are you coming to church? It ain't see me. If you ain't going to listen to God, why are you coming to church? The only legitimate reason to come to church is to meet with the Lord, to hear from God, to let Him work in our heart and in our life. If you're not going to let Him do that at the house, you probably ain't going to let Him do it at God's house either. And so pretty soon, what happened? Well, He got out. He got out. He just quit. I I, I see in this passage it defiled his fellowship. It defiled his worship. But then notice verse number 7. The Bible says, Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And it didn't stop there. Likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their God. What a sad, tragic testimony this is. I think oftentimes, again, we have this sort of perspective and perception of Solomon because of the prevailing themes in his life. But think about it for a moment. If you were a visitor to Jerusalem, you had traveled there to see Solomon's temple, this great glorious wonder. Before you ever saw the temple, you were going to see these pagan temples now. Ooh, I'm just going to... Let's just stay there for a second. You want to just stay there? Let's just stay there. You got a sandwich. You packed a lunch, right? You know, the problem with the flesh. You get in the flesh, whatever you've done for God, people ain't going to see that. They're going to see what you did in the flesh. This is the man that built God's house on earth. But now he's not known for that. Now he's known for building these pagan temples. By the way, he built a lot more pagan temples than he did true temples. Now all of a sudden, the work of his life is eclipsed. And not only is it eclipsed, but he has taken his attention away from serving the Lord his God. And now he is serving these pagan gods. I've known people, you've known people like this. You serve the Lord, you used to be in, you used to love the Lord and be in, uh, living for God, serving in the church. And now the only place you're going to find them is at work, down at the golf course, down at the campground. What happened? Well, all of a sudden they quit serving him and started serving them. Right oh, that's okay. I'm, I, I'm not... <laughs> What happened? Well, listen, you let sin in your life, it's going to defile and disrupt your work for the Lord. You won't serve God long. If You let sin in your life, you won't serve... Oh, you may come and sit in a pew, and you may amen occasionally, but you won't do nothing for God. Uh, It it takes more than just sitting and worshiping and listening to preaching to have the strength you need to live for God. And it it ain't going to take long. Pretty soon, pretty soon you'll get out. Pretty soon you'll quit. You know why? Because that's really what the flesh desires for you in the first place. This was not just some unfortunate mishap. This is the design, the ministration of the flesh in a man's life. It eclipses all that God desires to do and instead replaces it with that which glorifies the flesh. I see the defilement of the flesh. And then finally, and I'm done this morning, I want you to notice the damage of the flesh. Say, all right, preacher, you've showed me, I I can see it here, I can see how it happens, I can see what happens, but but so what? I mean, there's lots of people, preacher, that that live and don't live right for God, and they have little pet sins in their life and things that they cling to. Why is it such a big deal if I do? Well, I think we find the answer in our text. What is so damaging about letting the flesh have the right-of-way in your life? Well, three things. Notice verse number 9 gives us the first thing. The Bible says this, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Now that seems small. That seems slight. It seems like a, just a short statement. Just it, it just it almost just dumps it in your lap, like you ought to just know what to do with it. You know why? Listen, you ain't gonna if you don't love him very much, you're not gonna be bothered if he's displeased with your life. There's people all over the world that can't stand me. I don't care because I don't like them either. <laughs> you know the the truth of the matter is, when you're in ministry, you deal with criticism, cynicism. Scrutinization, all that different stuff, and uh, there's a lot of pastors. The way they they cope with that is by you know uh, building a wall over their heart, not loving folks, not caring what. I don't think that's the right way to do it. I don't think that's how we should interact with people. But I am saying this: that if somebody uh, if somebody is angry with us, if they're upset with us, if they're if they're displeased with us, that only has impact, in force, and import if we care about them. Uh, Do you want the Lord to be pleased with you? Or do you want him to be angry with? you? So, oh, preacher, the Lord ain't angry with anyone. He's angry with the wicked every day. You think the Lord isn't grieved and bothered? You think he isn't disturbed? Hey, even the New Testament tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I would say this. You say, preacher, what does it hurt? Well, it hurts God's feelings. And if that's a small thing to you, I think I'd check up. If that's a small thing to you, I think I'd ask where your heart is at. Say, so, oh, preacher, who cares? You better care. He's the lover of your soul. He's the Savior of your soul. It better matter to you or something deeper more fundamentally is wrong. I see the Lord's displeasure, but then I see this. The Lord was angry with Solomon. Why? Because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. I've spent a hundred days with my kids in a car over the past week. And uh, you spend a lot of time correcting your children, you know. Either that or you just give up, one of the two. And uh, I will often say to my kids, I'll say, that's the second time that I've told you this. Don't make me tell you again. I've told you twice. Why do we say that? Does, does it communicate... <laughs> Not like, what does it matter? But yeah, yeah, you know, why do we say that? It doesn't communicate to them any new information. Uh, if, if, if my kid was as smart aleck as I am, he'd look back at me and say, yeah, duh, I was there for it. <laughs> He's not yet. Why do we say that? What are we trying to communicate? It's not new information. They already know we've told them once before, here's what we're doing. We're expressing disdain, disappointment, and disgust with their actions. We're saying, what a shame that I've had to tell you this twice. I shouldn't have to tell you twice, you ought to respect me and love me enough that once is enough to get the job done. Why should I have to tell you twice? Here's what the Holy Ghost says about Solomon. The Lord was angry with him. Why? Because he messed up? Because the Lord had appeared unto him not once, but twice and expressly told him not to do this thing. So preacher, what does it matter if I indulge the flesh? Who cares? You know, I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Why is it a big deal if I do? Well, number one, because of the displeasure of the Lord, but number two, because of the Lord's disappointment. Because it embarrasses Him. You know, there's going to come a day. I don't want to, I don't want to be ashamed at His coming. And I don't want Him to be ashamed of me at His coming either. I, embarrassment is, is part of our, is part of our DNA as God's created beings made in His image. Uh, The Bible tells us that one of the marks of mankind's wickedness in the latter days would be that men would lose the capacity to blush. The ability to be embarrassed, to be shamefaced, for our countenance to be chagrined, the ability to have that is a godly characteristic. Uh, Listen, if we can be embarrassed at wrongdoing, do you think God's not embarrassed at our wrongdoing? I would say the Lord's displeasure and the Lord's disappointment, then... The final thing, and this ought to mean something to us, is the Lord's discipline. Verse 11 says this, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Whenever this is said, Jeroboam undoubtedly was scurrying around the house, just a young man. Uh, whenever this was disclosed to Solomon, no doubt, Jeroboam's mother was possibly carrying dishes away from the table. And I I don't know that Solomon could have understood just how explicit this proclamation from the Lord was. Literally, this man that's walking around right now, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you, Solomon, and I'm going to give it to him. It's interesting to me that Solomon spends the rest of his life trying to kill Jeroboam. It's almost as though he thought, if I could just kill Jeroboam it would secure and save and rescue my legacy. But you know, the truth of the matter is, the kingdom wasn't rent away because of what Jeroboam did. Jeroboam was a nobody. I'm talking about a nobody, a nothing. He, he had no lineage. He had no heritage. He is the, the, the lowborn son of a servant and of a widow woman. There is no reason those tribes should have followed him. You say, preacher, why did that happen? Because the Lord stirred up an adversary. You know why that is? Because long before the Lord ever stirred up an adversary, Solomon stirred up the Lord. He disobeyed the Lord. And Solomon, unwilling to cope and accept this reality, spends the rest of his life trying to kill this man and punish this man and capture this man to somehow stave off what God has already decreed would be the case. I'm going to give you some hard truth. You ready for I don't know that any truth is hard truth. There's just truth that's hard on us I'm going to give you some hard truth right now. This world can't stop you from serving God. If you ain't serving God, it's because you've chosen not to serve God. And you can spend all your time blaming everybody in life as, well, preacher, this person's trying to hurt me. This person's trying to stop me. Well, preacher, I was at church one time. Somebody hurt my feelings. Somebody said this. Somebody said that. And that might satisfy you, uh, but that don't make it true. I'm not saying they didn't hurt you. I'm not saying you ain't got adversaries. I'm saying none of that is what stops you. What stops you is when you won't walk with the Lord. What stops you is when you won't give your heart and life to Him. Uh, You say, preacher, you don't understand. The whole world's against me. Well, your faith has overcome the world. So what's your excuse? The truth is you need to quit looking around for somebody else to blame and look in the mirror and recognize who the real adversary is. It ain't all them. Hey, God will take care of all them. It's all you that you have to deal with. And so your greatest adversary is the one that stares back at you in the mirror I wonder when we'll get our focus and attention. I bet it'd create a lot more peace in our life if we'd recognize that truth, don't you think? Don't you think? Uh, Instead of wringing our hands about how helpless we are to change anything about this world, we'd probably get busy doing something that pleased God. Because we'd recognize it's not about sitting around waiting for some politician to rescue us, waiting for some movement to sweep along and fix everything in society, but it's about us living our life for Christ and letting Him get glory through us. Hey, it's not them, it's you. So I wonder if you'd be willing to do something about you in your life. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I want you to come. I want you to seriously deal with this matter before the Lord. The greatest adversary you have is you, just like the greatest adversary I have is me. The preacher, I got I got people that's giving me problems, probably, but they're not really your problem. Say, preacher, if people would help me, if they do this, if they do that. No, that's not what it's going to take. It's going to take you surrendering your heart, getting your life where it needs to be with the Lord. I'm not saying all those problems are going to go away. I'm saying the Lord's bigger than those problems. And if you'll just get your heart where it needs to be with Him, you'll find that He'll take care of the rest. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.